As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is a true crime podcast, as the title suggests. So please consider this your warning that it's not suitable for children and it probably will contain content that may be triggering to some people. Also, it's an Australian true crime podcast, so Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners should be aware it may contain the voices of deceased people. The producers of this podcast recognise the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging. After he was hung, Elijah Upjohn claimed that Burns had told him that I've cooked eight altogether, 
I cooked five in Victoria and three interstate. And now you're going to cook me. Like many of us, our guest today has researched her family tree using one of the online ancestry websites. Unlike most of us, Julie DeBella found a serial killer lurking in hers. Julie has spent the last couple of years researching the crimes of her great-great-grandfather, Robert Francis Burns, who's gone down in the history books as Australia's first serial killer. She's writing a book about her infamous ancestor, and she joins us on Australian True Crime today to tell us what she's uncovered so far. I was working on my family tree. Every so often I'll, um, I'm a tight ass and I'll get a subscription to Ancestry. And I decided my task at the time was to work out where each ancestor arrived in Australia. And I noticed I had a bit of a dead end and I had two great-great-grandparents that both died in Brunswick in 1902. And I thought, that's really weird. What did they die from? Was it a you know, was I sick or as an accident? Anyway, I ended up Googling their names and I found an essay written by someone from the Mount Rouse Historical Society. And he'd been doing research on pubs in Penshurst and he'd found a story where the publican had given evidence because Burns had been there and they were investigating the murder. And I looked and I thought, nah, this can't be right. And it even listed the children and where they were born. And I thought, this is right. And I still couldn't believe it. And so I spent the next couple of hours trying to disprove it. And then I got onto Ancestry and messaged all the people that had the same information that I did, sent them a copy of the essay and said, what do you think? And they all came back and said, yeah. Our relative is that murderer. Yeah. And, that, like, these people are, like, distant, distant cousins. And I rang my cousin because uh, she spent the most time with our grandfather and said, did you have any inkling at all that our great-great-grandfather was hung for being a serial killer? Anyway, she just said no. <laughs> and, uh, yes, yeah, so then we just started our sneaky background research in the family because we didn't want to sort of share the information because some people in the family, I think they're nice. Life would be nicer if they don't know. And it's very unlikely that they'd be listening to true crime podcasts. So I, Absolutely. Obviously, in my line of work, I meet lots of people who have stories in their family about crime, true crime. And some for some people, they have members of their family who are offenders. And I meet people who have crime stories that are much more recent than this and it's never spoken about in their family. So I can understand what you're saying about some members of your very extended family at this stage not really being interested in pursuing this story. So how far have you gotten? How much do you know? There is a Wikipedia page. So, you know, there is a fair bit that's known publicly, but what have you managed to ascertain about your great, great, Grandfather, is it? Or is there another great? Uh, great, great. We'll just call him Burns. Just Burns. It makes it easier. <laughs> Burns. Robert <laughs> Francis Burns. So I love Trove. I love Prof. Yes. And I love research. In the past, I did some local historical walking tours. 
and with a focus on crime and ghosts and things like that. So I already had a bit of a passion for it anyway. So I found the Wikipedia page and it was great. And when I knew I had to, and not necessarily write a book, but I knew because I've got a Bachelor in Criminal Justice, I really wanted to know the motive. I wanted to just know what was in his head and just find out everything I could. And I put it down on paper and then it just kept getting bigger and bigger. So at first I was going to write the story, but then I looked at the Wikipedia page and I thought, I don't want to reproduce a Wikipedia page. So I started editing Trove very heavily because a lot of the scans weren't very good and I've cut and pasted everything I could find that was relevant and have put, I've put it into chronological order. He was born in Ireland mm. in sort of the mid-1800s. Why were Irish families moving to Australia at that time mostly? I'm just guessing it was, you know, for work opportunities, especially on the railway railroads, because I believe they had the same gauge railway line as us, but I could be wrong about that. And he was a young man. He was, you know, 19 when he arrived. You imagine he was pretty fit and strong if he was a labourer. So I think he just came here for a fresh start. Can I tell you, when I did the same as you, and I still dip in and out, same as you, and I found, I was laughing about this with my mum. She's the Irish connection in our family. And the ancestry results, you know, they have the census results. And it's like one year, one young Irish man came out and he moved to Bundaberg in Queensland to, you know, cut cane and all that. And his address was a tent at the showgrounds. Oh, wow. That was his address. Yeah. And the next census, he was living in a house in Bundaberg. The next census, I think four of his relatives, maybe siblings, they had moved into the house. By the next census, there's about 12 of them. His parents, his siblings, they'd all moved out. So it was this progressive movement, all started by one of the boys. So I think you're right. I think they came out for work at that stage, bit by bit. Yeah. Do you know when when the crime started? Do you know much about him as a person, is there any anecdotal? There's a few letters that were used as evidence where he'd been writing to uh, one of the victim's families and they believed that he did that to, uh, you know, try and, um, oh, you know, a red herring or whatever they call it. So those letters were reproduced in the newspapers and you can just sort of see, like, in it, you know, he's quite gossipy about um, some things, but saying, I don't want to gossip about another man, but da-da-da-da-da. And it sounds like he had a really good sense of humour. Other people might argue with me, but, you know, my family, we've got a strange sense of humour. So the one thing I found that I couldn't stop laughing about was the papers were outraged, but apparently he'd offered his workmates arsenic on bread and butter for morning tea. Now, I could just imagine my family doing something like that, saying, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, joke. you want some fairy bread? You know, come on, eat it, eat it. What's wrong with you? So, and, and they sort of put that as, as forward as evidence that, um, you know, that he was, uh, you know, deranged. Look, he was missing for about eight years, can't find where he was, but then he next appears in Adelaide where he meets his, uh, his wife and they get married in Mount Gambier in 1868. Okay, did they have children? Yeah, um, about five. So a couple were born in, one was born in Mount Gambier, the eldest. Two were born in a place called Allendale. 
I've been there. There's nothing there except for a pub and a sinkhole and a general store. I mean, obviously he had children because you're his his offspring. Yeah. But, I mean, when I say did they have children, was she his only wife? Yeah. And um, it looks like the place they lived on at Allendale was probably a station of some sort, you know, cattle station, sheep station. So he would have been a labourer or something like that. Then they must have started walking and they're next in Hamilton and they have a baby in Hamilton. Then he buys some land in Dunkeld and that's where my great-grandmother, Ellen, Nellie, that's where Nellie was born in Dunkeld. Then a short while later, or maybe two years later, he sold the land in Dunkeld and they bought a house in Stall in Wimmera Street Stall. Moving all around Victoria. So they started in South Australia. So they're really, they're not settling anywhere. They're moving all around. Gosh, that's hard for both of them. And I'm going to say it's sexist, but I'm going to say, especially on his wife, she's she's raising kids all the way around as they're going around, little kids. Yeah, one of the things I read was um, that he pretty much left her abandoned in a, in a tent or shack on the edge of their property while he was just out gallivanting and drinking. So when when do the crimes begin? What do you know of the crimes? So they're all in that Western District area. So I think the first appearance is one of his workmates dies. He, so he's working on the railway. His workmate gets sick. They put him on the trolley and take him back to the tent and then overnight he dies. And Burns is at the inquest and the doctor said that uh, he, this man died from English cholera. And so that's the first death. Then they found a body in uh, Wycliffe and it was uh, unidentified and it had been, the body had been hit in the back of the head with an axe or something. They couldn't identify the body and the person was buried. Then a while later, they found in Stall and you can sort of plot where he was living at the times is sort of where these murders happened. He was he was in the area. And and when I was researching it, I went in there with an open mind. Did he do it? Didn't he do it? I'm 95% sure that he did. Because he was never ca- caught red-handed, was he? I mean, no. the first one, for example, Quinn Liven, his remains weren't found for some weeks. The second one was a headless corpse. Yeah, so that was the one that he was first arrested for. Right. They never found the head in spite of the government offering a £20 reward. They were hoping the local boys of Stall would get out in the bush and find the head. So, you know, so much for crime scene management or, you know, traumatising children. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so uh, the detectives in the area, they eventually figured out who they thought the the body was and they started tracking his last known whereabouts and the last person he was seen with was was Burns. So when they arrested him, apparently he said, nah, nah, um, Charlie's still alive. He's, he's working in New South Wales. So the police got to New South Wales looking for him and then they come back and he goes, oh, oh, I made a mistake. He was in New Zealand. So then they go to New Zealand looking for him. Uh, they had... Uh, wanted notices of with photos of him in every police station in the colony. And if you can just try and think of the logistics of that in 1882. That is massive in those days. Yeah, yeah. yep. Uh, so then it went to court in Melbourne. But, of course, they still hadn't found the head. They couldn't 
positively identify the person. So he was found not guilty. In the meantime, one of the uh, police people, McCoppin, I think his name was, he thought of um, Quinlevin and the unidentified body. So he started investigating that and he discovered that Quinlevin or that person also worked with Burns and they were able to identify the clothes. And every so often you kind of feel like you're being punched in the guts with knowing this stuff. And one of the things I read was they got Michael Quinlevin's sister to identify the clothes and, like, that would have just been horrific. But she recognised his muffler, which I believe was a scarf, and he'd promised her that she could have it to make a wrap for her baby. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Yeah, you're right. Sometimes with historical crime I think it's hard to, because of the way it was reported as well, it's hard to really engage with the people, isn't it? It's hard to engage emotionally with the victims and with their families, but it's little details like that that help you remember. Mm. The people involved, that poor lady. Yeah, and she just heartbroken. Yeah, she collapsed in the court as well. Mm. And so when he left the Supreme Court in Melbourne, he was immediately rearrested for the next murder, and they were also reinvestigating the man that died um, that he appeared at the inquest for, and they decided that he poisoned him. So to get the evidence for everything, they exhumed both of the bodies. And that was, um, you know, almost horror movie stuff with coffins cracking open and being filled with water and uh, scooping up evidence and taking it by train to Melbourne in jars for forensic investigation. Uh, So after he was um, rearrested, he was remanded to Hamilton. He wanted to have the trial installed, but that was refused. So the first trial in Hamilton, and it pretty much involved the whole town, there was at times up to 40 witnesses because when they traced his movements, they had to interview every shopkeeper, hotel owner, the bank managers, uh, pawn shops, workmates. So the list was quite long. And I'm sure a lot of the people or descendants of those people probably still live in the areas. You're so right. They would do. Absolutely. I mean, I, you know, have been around those towns a bit in my adult life and it does, they do tend to be places where people have grown up and Mm. stayed. Yeah. And people's grandparents and great grandparents are still around in a lot of cases. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, the first trial, the jury went away and they came back, one of the jury had supposedly said, I'll eat my boots before I have the blood of another man on my hands. So the jury was dismissed and it was a a mistrial. So then they had to have a second trial and go through the whole thing again. So like when you're putting the book together, a lot of the evidence is just repeat of evidence from the trial. What sort of evidence is still available to you as a researcher? I can only find the oh, the central prisoner's record and that's the photo of him, but that was when he um, was admitted into Hamilton. He also spent some, quite a bit of time in Old Melbourne Jail, or Melbourne Jail it would have been called then. I can find where he was admitted, but I can't find any other information. I'm still looking but apparently someone found records from the Bendigo jail at the Bendigo library in a box. 
Wow, literally still in a box. Yeah. So at the after the second trial, he was uh, he was found guilty and he was sentenced to hang. His solicitor, who seemed like a really decent bloke, he did his best to try and get it overturned on some points of law that during the trial they ended up choosing a juror that they'd already refused because the last one available was drunk. And then the other point was some evidence that was discussed. I think it was about accusing him of poisoning someone. And so they anyway, they tried really hard and they took it to um, to appeal. But before, I think, like a bench of four uh, top magistrates or whatever they were called back then, and they still held the verdict and he was um, sentenced to hang. He was hanged by the neck until dead. Mm. In which prison? Where was he hanged? Ararat. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Do you know who, who his executioner was? Yep, Ned Kelly's executioner, Elijah Upjohn. And one of the sensational things about the case is after he was hung, Elijah Upjohn claimed that Burns had told him that I've cooked eight altogether, I cooked five in Victoria and three interstate, and now you're going to cook me. So when Elijah told the reporters that the next day, everybody said it was bullshit. All of the officials at the prison said that could not possibly have happened. And Elijah did a stat deck or an affidavit saying it was true. 
in my research on him, I actually think he was a pretty decent bloke. Like um, some people make fun of him later on, but, you know, at one stage he was trying to be a healer and was promoting cannabis for healing. Elijah Upjohn was. Yeah, and, I mean, that's something that people still do today. And I read one of his letters to an editor about something and he was quite articulate. You know, I just think he was, you know, a decent guy that had a lot of trauma. Oh, absolutely. We did a um, an episode with Michael Adams from Forgotten Australia, the podcast, and he's done episodes about the hangmen of early Australia. And so we talked a lot about Elijah and I had no idea about them at all. I'd never really put much thought into it. And so he was the one who told it, told us that, you know, they were actually prisoners themselves mm. and that Elijah was sentenced to transportation to Australia for breaking into a house and stealing shoes. That's, mm. That was why he ended up in jail and in England and then transported to Australia. So, yeah, his initial crime was pretty pathetic. So I, I'd, I'd been thinking about the, you know, the confession on the gallows And I don't know why, but I just had this inkling. So I went to the public records office last week or the week before and Burns, when he was re-arrested and he was remanded to uh, Hamilton, he left Melbourne jail in August of 1882. Upjohn was uh, sentenced to old Melbourne jail in September of 1882 for indecent exposure in Coburg. I'm not, you know, even though I think he's a genuine man, I'm not saying he wasn't a pervert. My theory is, and I actually emailed uh, Michael Adams about it because, you know, these these people become real to you after a while. And anyway, so my theory was that Upjohn, when he was admitted into prison, this case was all over the media. It had been in it for you know, nearly a year, he would know that there's a good chance that Burns is going to end up on the end of his rope. So I believe he went in there and did a bit of prison grapevine and he may have got that information from the prison and just felt compelled to get it out there. And one of the reports says that he actually told a maintenance worker at the jail that same story before the hanging. Oh, yeah. And also reportage was very clunky mm. in those days, you know, and, and Michael talks about that a lot as well on Forgotten Australia, that, you know, you can read different newspapers and the, they're reporting the same story very, very differently. The quotes are very different. So, yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised by any of, of what you're saying. And, in fact, as you were talking about the murders, the two murders for which he was convicted, I wanted to ask you if you thought there were more because it seems just from what we know now about criminology, it seems like those are two pretty brutal murders for a man to only commit to. Mm. And as well, and they're more brutal too because it was his workmates that he murdered, you know, people that shared a tent with him and things like that. And the way he moves around so much and I was thinking, I wouldn't be surprised if there are a few more around the place. So. In, in spite of all the media and authorities saying that they didn't believe Upjohn, I'm not sure if the police did any investigations, but some journalists did, and they found seven murders that they believed that he did. But there's no... Uh, look, the closest they got to it was there was one found in Wagga Wagga in very similar uh, circumstances, and 
his photo was recognised at having been drinking at the pubs around about that time and one of the railway contractors said, yes, he'd been working for him but he didn't have his um, payroll books anymore. So there's no physical evidence but there's the, the hearsay. So, And when I read that one, this is what gave me, now this is another one of my crazy theories and, you know, my family will tell you I've always got crazy ideas. When the person was murdered in Wagga Wagga, he was last heard walking into a bush, into the bush, in the dark, with a man and saying to him, what are you going to do to me? So if that's true, you wouldn't be going into the bush with someone you thought was going to murder you. But I'm wondering if they went, were going into the bush for what was in those days called unnatural acts. Well, Here's the the other thing I was about to ask you is motive. I haven't heard you discuss motive yet. I know that his brother-in-law also disappeared at at one point and there was some suggestion that his own brother-in-law, his sister's brother, could potentially have been a victim of his and robbery was thought of as a motive there because his brother-in-law arrived in Australia with some money, with some savings, disappeared, and then people said later, Oh, and then a couple of weeks later we ran into Burns and he was cashed up. So robbery was considered maybe to have been a motive at some point. But I hear what you're saying as well about some perhaps unnatural relations, as they used to say back in the olden days, because otherwise what are the what motives mm. have been bandied about for these murders? Yeah, well, with the murders, they'd just been gallivanting around in the bush, walking from town to town or catching the train with their swags and they're just on the piss. And he was a devout Catholic and he, and he was obviously a blackout drunk because at one stage he got arrested at the at the races, I think it was at Matoa, and they put him in the drunk tank. And when he woke up the next morning, he was sort of saying, oh, what have I done? What am I here for? And later on they sort of thought, oh, they, they said that he was probably worried he'd been arrested for murder. But my theory was he's, he's a blackout drunk and the Irish call it the fear we call it alcoholic remorse. But, you know, when you've had a blackout and you wake up the next day and you think, oh, what have I done? It could have just have been a case of that. And apparently when they told him that um, it was just for drunk and disorderly, he, uh, he did the Irish jig. Oh, my God. Yeah. So, I mean, you can think different things about that story. But um, some of the things that were said in some of the court transcripts, they describe the victims and Burns as being um, quite taken with each other and very close and on intimate terms. They're they're euphemisms, if ever I've heard them. Yeah. In court documents of, of the day. Anyway, I don't know whether that's it, but that's kind of my theory. And Within the family, there is um, a history of an illness or condition called Warnicke-Korsakoff syndrome. It's like an alcohol-related dementia and they're just overtaken by alcohol-seeking behaviour. And if he suffered from that, it could also explain uh, his not having any memory of it or just you know, having having a rage or trying to cover up unnatural relations. As I said, it's a crazy theory and I have no no proof. But I don't believe money was a motive because 
he was selling his land. He had land. Unless the alcohol-seeking behaviour was so bad that he wanted the money that people had to just keep drinking. Yeah, and certainly some of the victims don't appear on the surface to have had much money. The other labourers he was working with in a couple of cases don't appear to have had much money. Mm, No. The Warnicke-Korsakoff syndrome theory is really fascinating. I mean, you know, oftentimes now we, we look back and think, there are so many things now that are diagnosable, mm. aren't there, mm. that just weren't diagnosed before. When you have this family connection, have you ever, is it different? Is it different for you? Because as you say, you have always been interested in research. You've always been interested in true crime. Is it different when you have this family connection now? Uh, yes. The only way I can describe it is it feels like a punch to the guts but I'm very good at compartmentalising. In the past, I was a drug and alcohol counsellor. So, you know, sometimes you just got to put things on the back burner and I think I'm just able to disassociate from it. But do you humanise him at all? Is there is there any way to think about Burns as Robert? I'm still working on that. It's really hard, isn't it, when there's no information, when there's no, like, siblings talking about it there's no sort of it's hard there's no one describing him I suppose his wife didn't give interviews to the paper about what sort of bloke he was or anything like that or his children they would have just wanted to disassociate themselves from him so I think I really was more interested in finding out about his wife Ellen I know they searched the police searched her house in stall so you can imagine in a small country town that would have just been huge gossip Oh, what happened to them, you know? Like she still had young kids, I guess, when he was arrested. Yeah, well, my um, great-grandmother, Ellen, she was three when he was hung. My yeah. God. So, so she did go and see him a couple of times in, in jail in Melbourne as well and maybe once or twice in Hamilton, but it was really hard for her to travel from stall, especially with all the children. But there is one mention where Burns asks his solicitor, to ask her the, the one of the doctors that was giving forensic evidence if she could talk to him. And he said, um, if you could do it on her behalf, she doesn't have the cheek for that. So it sounds like she was probably a woman that kind of knew her, what was expected of her back in the day. Before the execution, she went into Ararat Jail and loudly called all the, the warders and officials every name under the sun and everyone was horrified at her behaviour. And after he was executed, she stayed on install for about five years in the house. Wow. So I'm hoping that the community rallied around her. Yeah. I'm hoping that they helped her out and helped her children. And I'm hoping that, I'm, I'm thinking they may have, because otherwise why would she have stayed there for five years? So she did eventually leave. When her oldest daughter got married, she moved to, I think it was Parkville, Brunswick, somewhere like that, and lived with we lived with them. The uh, records say she was a dressmaker and the other children all seem to have moved there as well and lived around the area, you know, some of the brothers and sisters, you know, they would, you know, be boarding together and, um, you know, I think they were labourers. Ellen, my great-grandmother, she was a nurse for a little while. 
and then after she married my great-grandfather, she was an artist and a milliner. And family legend says that, you know, after he died, she travelled the world and met the Pope with her art. Oh, boy, they really pulled themselves together as human beings do after what their dad and husband did. Yeah. God, this is what I mean about historical crime. It really does suck me into the lives of these people and I just wish I could meet them and wish I could know them and wish I could tell them how brilliantly they've done and just because I can't imagine how hard it was for that woman to raise all of those kids after that. Yeah, the oldest was 12 I get and emotional. the youngest was three. Yeah. So, you know, so when I first started, I think I was more interested in Alan, his wife, than I was with him. And I, But I did want to, you know, I was curious on the motive. But when I started, I really just thought that I was going to find information like in the Wikipedia article. But the more I researched, I realised how it became a snapshot of the times. For example, his solicitor, his first barrister, overdosed on um, sleeping medication and they had to double-check that um, he, his wife hadn't poisoned him, but it was lucky she hadn't. Then there was a great big bitch fight between the local priest and his solicitor in Hamilton where um, he'd used Burns's case in his sermon and so the solicitor compla- complained in the paper saying it was contempt of court. So then he defended himself. So then they're having arguments over who goes to church and who's the better Christian. So he used it in church before the conviction? Yeah, during the second trial. Yeah, wow. So it's like a modern-day social media yeah, cock-up. Yeah, <laughs> Oh, there was just so many, just so many interesting things that I that I found. Like, all right. When the gossip started, so one of the gossips were that a woman that lived in Stall had been arrested because she'd been seen, a witness had seen her carrying a bloodied head in her apron and dumping it into a a dam and she had an African-American husband and so they were shunned in the town and one of my friends, Jackie Saunders, she does a lot of research on the um, inmates at Aradale and she was in and out of the, you know, the psychiatric place. So the newspaper had to uh, sort of say, please stop the gossip, it's not true. Then there was another report that the local Chinese miners were responsible for the decapitation. Uh, you know, just there was just all these different theories. It was so racist. That's what I find when I was looking in at Trove. I was writing about actually... Um, in my last book, I was writing about when they they brought out a bunch of Irish girls after the famine to work as like domestics and maids and nannies and stuff for settler families here in Australia. And the racism was extraordinary in the... No Irish need apply. Yeah, no Irish. And then into the gold rush and they were talking about these Irish girls just being little savages and they, they called them gangs, Irish ga- girl gangs. And then the the racism about the Chinese in the gold rush, and this is in newspapers. Mm. This is, you know, the reports in the newspapers were unbelievably racist. And that, all of that to me is such a big part of historical crime. Once you start reading the old papers looking for these news stories, you just, it's mind-blowing, isn't it, the attitudes of the day reflected in in the press, in the media. And um, 
In one of the letters that when I read it, that I read through it, Burns actually is slut shaming someone. Uh, yep, yeah, a woman that's supposedly someone's wife. Oh yeah, a lot of that. Yep, yeah, and then um, refers very unkindly to um, female Aboriginal Australians. Well, they used to do that to the Irish girls too. They used to put them in jail if they didn't come back to their, you know, if their boss wanted them home at five or whatever and, and they didn't come home at five, it'd send them to, to jail on bread and water for a couple of days. It's just crazy. Yeah, very different time. It is different times but it's, as I say, historical true crime is just a, a good method, I think, a good way of exploring and reminding us of in a way how things have changed but in a way how they haven't because I think we can still see a lot of these attitudes about different groups today and about different, you know, you can see, you can see these things reflected in the media today, mm. really. Yeah. yeah. Over the years I've done quite a bit of research on um, attitudes towards gangs in Melbourne and um, police response and you can just see it. It just keeps getting recycled and now it's being recycled again with, a, you know, with a different demographic. Now, have you finished this book? Are you still working on it? Where are we at? Um, as you know, when you write a book, it's never finished. Just one yes. day you have to say, I'm going to stop. So I'm at that point and I can't help myself. I'm looking to see what happened to some of the other punters. Uh, oh, and then the other thing that I've still got to do is following the murders in quite a few years afterwards, they kept finding heads and skulls in stall. And I think there's been about three that have been found at different times that weren't related to the case. No. And um, when I went to the Dunkeld Historical Society and they were absolutely lovely and I said who I was and what I was researching, they knew straight away because, um, you know, some of the, the Quinlivan descendants are still, well, I'm not sure if they're still in the area, I believe they are, but they have, um, you know, some of their articles in the museum there their war medals, things like that. Anyway, the first thing she said to me was, where do you think the head is? And I, I just said, oh, I don't know. But later on I went away and I thought, oh, they actually bought, um, and, and this is uncomfortable, they bought Michael Quinlivan's skull into the trial to show the jury for evidence. So I kind of wonder, was she asking me about, Charlie Forbes's head, or was she was Michael put back together? I don't know, but Forbes's head is still missing, right? Yes, and coincidentally, Ned Kelly's head is still missing. Mm. Isn't that a weird coincidence? Yeah, another link between the two stories. Yeah, fascinating. Thank you to our guest today, Julie DeBella. We'll keep you updated about that book of hers. And you can hear more about the hangman who executed her great-great-grandfather, Robert Francis Burns, and Ned Kelly in episode 278 of Australian True Crime with Michael Adams. There's a link to that episode in the show notes to this one. If you need support after listening to this podcast, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14 or contact 1800 RESPECT on 1800 737 732 or 1800respect.org.au. Indigenous Australians can contact 13 Yarn on 13 9276 or 13yarn.org.au. Thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime. We'll be back next week. 
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out.